Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life? You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Chip Conley, author of Emotional Equations. At age 26, Chip Conley started out as a rebel entrepreneur, building one of America's most successful boutique hotel brands, Joie de Vivre. In this interview, you're going to learn how we can have our emotions represent the best in us, opposed to letting them get the best of us. You'll learn where emotions like anxiety, happiness, and authenticity come from and how we can deal with them. You'll learn the importance of becoming emotionally intelligent and how you can be strong and emotional simultaneously. Hey, Chip. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Good to be with you. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled that we get to talk about our emotions together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. As, as two guys, um, that's a, a cool thing, a cool position to, to be in, to actually open up and express my emotions to another man. I really appreciate that. But I, I want to start kind of by asking you about your story and kind of some of the challenges you, you faced as a young adult and how you overcame them and how they ultimately led you to where you are today. Well, you know, the, the fact is uh, we all carry a certain amount of baggage along with us, and some of us are more conscious of our baggage than others, and I, I've seen people in their 50s and 60s who didn't realize they had baggage, and they're sort of hunched over, <laughs> and they're hunched over because of their stress. And so I think one of the best things a young person can do is to just sort of understand, you know, what's the baggage they have. Uh, it depends on what your religious beliefs are. Some people could believe that you're bringing baggage from a past life, some past karma with you. Um, or it may be just that you, you know, it's your, your family situation that you grew up with, with that gave you a little bit of baggage. But I, I got to tell you that, you know, when you know you got some baggage and you know that sorting through your baggage and discarding the stuff in your baggage, in your luggage, that isn't actually serving you anymore means that you're traveling more lightly. And traveling more lightly is like being on a magic carpet ride. And life is meant to be a magic carpet ride. And I've actually had, you know, moments in my life, long periods of my life where I'm on that magic cup, right? And then I've had some really, really down periods too when I could feel really weighted down. So what I learned along the way is the more I understand my emotions, the more I'm not just emotionally intelligent, but I'm fluent. I can understand that when I'm feeling an emotion, I can actually articulate what it is and what it's doing for me. Um, that's helped me to, to be actually be um, a little bit more, you know, aware of, you know, what, what to do in my life and, and actually how to solve things when, they're, when I'm not feeling so good. Yeah. What, what were some of the emotional challenges you faced throughout perhaps your young adult phase of life? Well, when I was, you know, there's, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> you know, I, as with many of us in my, uh, I, when I grew up, when I was a youngster, like uh, before a teenager, I was very, very shy, very much of a loner. I was sort of, I had imaginary friends and very creative. I was a good athlete too, but I loved doing just athletics on my, my own. And then when I was in my, about 12 or 13 years old, my parents made me feel like, well, you know, if you don't actually turn yourself around here, Chip, we're going to send you to therapy. And I thought, oh, therapies must be really bad. I don't want to do that. So I went from being an introvert to sort of an extreme extrovert and really made a very conscious effort to try to go out and um, make friends and, you know, and sort of have everybody love me. So my teen years my, and my high school years especially and, and then into my college years were very much about building an identity that made you like me. 
and I was good at it. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't just, you know, I wasn't just the brown nose who people who just people said, oh God, that guy's like fake. No, I mean, I was really good at it. I was so good at it that I thought it was my primary identity. Um, I went to junior high school and high school in a very mixed race area, uh, very inner city area. So I was sort of, uh, they called me the curious white boy. Um, so I was sort of the guy that actually could hang with any different kind of crowd and get along with anybody. But what I started to realize in my 20s was that this little identity that I created, you know, at age 12 to sort of cope had become, uh, you know, a big mask. And so in my 20s, it was really about how to take off that mask, how to find myself, be more authentic to who I, who I was, um, and then be good with that. And I still actually have, I'm, still, I'm, and I'm, I'm both an introvert and an extrovert. I'm an introvert in the sense I like writing books. I know that there's parts of my life that really are introverted. Writing books are important to me. I love having space at home by myself at times where I just don't have to actually you know, communicate with anybody. I have a, I'm talking to you from my out, outdoor backyard cottage, which is where I do all my writing and my thinking, and I love this space. It's like my own little private sanctuary. Um, I love taking a bath. I love going for a run on the beach with my dog, you know, just by myself. These are the things I like to do by myself that I realize sort of light me up. And and yet at the same time, I've learned to be an extrovert and enjoy that as well. Um, I love throwing parties. I love hanging out with a small group of people, having a deep conversation. Um, so for me over time, it was about learning how I could be both personalities, both identities, and and feel really comfortable with that. So, you know, authenticity, I wrote this book called Emotional Equations, uh, and one of the uh, equations in the book is about authenticity, and it's really a combination of self-awareness and courage. It's being self-aware of who you are, but then it's being courageous to to make sure that um, who you are is, you know, out there in the world, Uh, because if you're just self-aware but you're not courageous, you know, you may know who you are, but nobody else does. Yeah, I think so much of the phase in life in the in the teens and early 20s and kind of as a young adult are, it, it's an identity quest, I think, for me, right? And I think for a lot of other young adults, it's figuring out, like, who are we and, and what are we here to do? And, and I don't think at the time that we really realize that it's an identity quest, which can make it a little bit more difficult because we just think, like, the world is so, you know, big and mysterious and how could we possibly freaking cope with this? But kind of having some clarity over, okay, th- this part of my life is, is about figuring out who am I and, and, and what am I here to do? And it's interesting to hear you and, and kind of your story about how, how that was for you. And then one of the things you said that struck out at me was, that you, you started to learn how to take off the mask. So what, what do you mean by take off the mask, and, and how can people go about doing that themselves and becoming more authentic? Well, taking off the mask for me had a lot to do with sensing in my gut what felt right to me and, and what didn't. And there are some people you spend time with, and when you're with them, and I'm not talking about someone you're, you're falling in love with or you are in love with. I'm talking about someone who's just a friend or someone actually maybe who you've just met. And there are some people who who you feel like, wow, I'm with, when I'm with them, I just feel like I can be real. I can be myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trust that. Trust your gut. Trust your gut when your gut says, this is a safe person to be with. I can have a confidential conversation with them. This is somebody who has integrity and, frankly, has some wisdom, maybe even at a young age. Um those are the kinds of people that you can actually start looking at. How do you behave? How do you act when you're with them? And what you start to find is when you're in in that person's company, you may actually be your best self. 
Abraham Maslow is a famous psychologist who talked about self-actualization. He had his hierarchy of needs pyramid at the top of the pyramid. He talked about self-actualization, about being all you can be. There are some people in life, when we're hanging out with them, uh, in the context of how we're hanging out with them, whether it's intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, uh, athletically, you feel like you're being all you're can, you can be when you're with that person. So trust that and recognize that's a very different person than the person you're with when you're with a group of other people where you feel like you have to actually put on a mask, you have to somehow be like part of the group, and it doesn't, and you feel like you're conforming to something that's not you. With time, what people do is they start to learn what's the habitat and the pond that they want to play in. And we're like, you know, we're like animals in Africa. Some animals have better better experience in certain habitats than other habitats. That's true for us as well. And you just need to find out what what's your right habitat. And um, and then you, know, you surround yourself with people like that. And I promise you, you're going to actually become a better person as re, as a result of it. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, one of the things that's helped me in that process is to kind of um, instead of thinking about validation or instead of thinking, okay, how, how will people like me? And, and I think that's pretty normal in a young adult to think, okay, how can I get people to like me? Um, opposed to looking for that, that kind of validation saying, how can I focus on communicating from my core and speaking about the things that are important to me that I care about? And even when I jump on the call to do an interview with you and I, I talk to you, I'm like, all right, well, there's a certain amount of nerves that are associated with that. And I come back to, okay, well, here Chip is. Chip has a really powerful message that I really care about and I know it's super valuable to a lot of young adults and to myself. Let me focus on connecting with Chip about you know, his message and, and what he has to share and how, you know, how there's a common thread between us and not so much, all right, is, is Chip going to think I'm an idiot because I didn't ask this you know, perfect question? So that's kind of been helpful for me in the bigger context of um, moving into a more authentic stage. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, you know, we... we <laughs> We sort of uh, this is back to the baggage thing. We have a tendency to, uh, you know, carry our parents with us in our heads our whole lives, or, or whomever you know was a sort of an authority figure in our lives, and, and so we can be very brutal in terms of how we uh, how we use what you know what's called the superego, um, which is this very damning and critical you know voice. And, um, you know, there's times when actually, for many of us, we've used that damning voice as a means to, to get better. It sort of like pushes us. It's very pushy, and it sort of pushes us to get better. But there's a point at which it actually is completely, completely uh, uh, way beyond something that's, that's beneficial to you. And at that point, you need to know you need to shut off that voice. And for me, I've used meditation as a means to do that, and I've used exercise. I've used a lot of different things. But um, I, you know, f- figuring out how to shut off that critical voice in your head uh, is one of the most valuable things you can do in your life. Yeah, awesome. So let's jump into the emotional equations and talk about the yeah. book and what emotional equations are and how you came up with that idea. Well, I was so uh, you know the truth is that I was a um, a CEO of a company for 25 years, which is a long time, uh, 24 years actually, uh, and. In, in the context of being the CEO for 24 years, uh, one of the things that I learned was that uh, leaders, whether you're, you're, you know, you're a parent in a family, whether you run a small division of four people, or in my case, I had a, a CEO of a company I founded, a, a boutique hotel company, and grew it to 3,500 employees. When you're the leader, you're sort of the emotional thermostat for the group you're leading. Which, what, what does that mean? It means that if you're um, in a good place uh, emotionally, 
your good place emotionally actually positively affects those um, that are there with you. Uh, and you, you affect the overall emotional you know, content of how people feel about the group. But when you're in a bad place, uh, the opposite happens, and you get into a pl- you can get into a place where, frankly, your bad space becomes sort of the bad space for everybody else. So um, what I learned four years ago is that I was going into a very deep, dark depression uh, in early 2008 for a variety of reasons that um, had to do with the fact that I frankly didn't want to be CEO anymore. Uh, and uh, I, and I, had a, I had a friend commit suicide. I had a, a long-term relationship ending. I had a son going to prison uh, wrongfully. He was in San Quentin prison for eight months. And that was, you know, and then until a federal judge let him out and said this man's innocent. And you know, but you know, still being in San Quentin for eight months is no fun for anybody. Um, and so I, I would just say that my experience with that was that I had to really start to understand myself a little bit better. I started reading a book called *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, uh, a famous psychologist in the 1930s who ended up in a concentration camp in the 1940s because he was Jewish. And he, it's a great story. Um, it's a great story of what it feels like to be in a concentration camp. So if you're having a bad day, read Man's Search for Meaning because you realize you're in a mental prison, you're not in a concentration camp. Um, and it, it's, worse, it's worse to be in a concentration camp. And so um, you know, what, I, what I learned from that was I wanted to actually, I, I had a personal experience where I, I, I uh, broke my ankle and then I got a bacterial infection in my leg. And when I was giving a speech in St. Louis, Missouri, I, I uh, went flatline on stage. I, I actually went unconscious, and then fortunately the paramedics showed up, and then I went flatline. So I died in essence. Uh, I was 47 years old. I was in great shape, but I was dead. Um, I was revived and wow. died, and I revived again. And that experience taught me that I wanted to turn that famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, into an equation not because I love math a lot, but primarily because I think math is a really great way to to understand solutions. And I wanted to be very concise and solution-oriented in my life. So I turned it into an equation, which was despair equals suffering minus meaning. So let me explain the, the sacred algebra here. <laughs> so so in algebra, for those of you who remember algebra, and you, you know you may have bad, bad memories, uh, but algebra has usually a constant and a variable in it. In this equation, the constant is suffering. And I'm not saying that life is just only suffering. If you're a Buddhist, it's actually the first noble truth of Buddhism is that uh, suffering is ever-present. But the truth is when we're going through life, and particularly when we're going through difficult times, it's really easy to get stuck focusing on the suffering. Um, so that's sort of the, that can be the, the, the constant during a difficult time. The variable in life is meaning. And the, so... If, you, if suffering is a constant and meaning is a variable and you increase the meaning, the way the math works of despair equals suffering minus meaning is the meaning goes up and despair goes down. Let's do, like, let's do a math equation. 8 equals 10 minus 2, right? So 8 equals 10 minus 2, despair equals suffering minus meaning. If 2, which is meaning, goes up to 3, then 8, despair, goes down to 7. So what I learned is when I'm in my most difficult times, what I need to do is figure out how to um, uh, f- how to actually find the meaning in it. And what does that mean? It means like figuring out what's the lesson here, uh, and what can I what can I take from this? 
for me, I actually started doing an emotional inventory every week. I was having a rough week, and I would just say, okay, what did I learn? What emotions did I learn? Because all of us are familiar with going to the gym and working out if we haven't worked out for a while, and all of a sudden we have muscles that we didn't realize we had in our body, and they're screaming at us like in pain. Well, that's what happens during an emotional boot camp. When we're in an emotional boot camp, we have emotional muscles, and those, that may be courage, it may be resilience, it may be humility, it may be authenticity, it may just be vulnerability. I learned at, you know, as the CEO of, of a company with 3,500 employees that being vulnerable was, was actually powerful. Now, that is so weird. I was not taught that, that in Stanford Business School. I was taught that you're supposed to look strong. But actually what I found is that you can look strong and be confident and still be vulnerable at the same time. And that vulnerability allows other people to be vulnerable and allows them to start breathing again. And when you're, if, when you're running a company that's in a difficult place, uh, when people are full of fear and anxiety, uh, what people tend to do is to stop breathing. I mean, not literally, like, like I did on stage. They stop <laughs> breathing in terms of, ha- you know, just they aren't real. They're, they're so focused on just preser- preserving what they have. They get into this very security, secure mode. And so long story short, um, you know, I just I feel like um, the thing that we need to learn in life is that each emotion, whether it's anxiety or it's love or it's happiness, there's an ingredient, there's a set of ingredients that help create that emotion. And that's what I learned from this. It helped me so much. Uh, and, uh, you know, I ended up going ahead and, um, you know, writing a book about it. Yeah, well, I'd love to jump into what some of those emotional equations are, but before I do, I'm, I'm thinking kind of back to my childhood, and as a kid, I was super emotional, and I kind of, I don't know, at some point in my early teens, that there was something that came over me that said, just an understanding, like, I shouldn't be emotional, and maybe I was like 13 or 14 and 15, and I just like, I had to get it together, you know, like, well, why was I crying as a kid, you know, I needed to kind of, in a sense, like, man up. And, um, and check my emotions. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that what I was doing is I was conforming to some social norms or some social implications about what a man should be. And, and right. I didn't realize that until, until almost recently. And I think there's a, a connotation that in order to be strong, we can't be emotional. And I think that it's not only for men because women are also in strong positions of power these days in particular, and I think that we can all feel the pressure to not embrace our emotions because we want to appear strong and we want to be confident and be able to lead. So it's incredibly like, liberating to hear coming from somebody who's been a CEO and, and in that position to say, it's all right, we can be strong and emotional at the same time. But my question for you would be, well, how do we, how do we manage that? How do we manage our both kind of being a leader and being, and being strong and um, at the same time feeling feelings like sadness or weakness or, um, you know, other things that may not be so glamorous and appealing to, to you know, show other people? Well, I, I think, first of all, you have to have confidence in yourself and confidence in where you're going. But, you you know, and, and when you're feeling shaky and like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen here, you know, you, you need, sometimes you need some time and space to yourself and with your, so maybe with even your senior team if you're, you know, you're in, a, in an environment where you're in a company and you're a leader. But the thing that I think really people appreciate is when when people are real with them. And if you're the leader of an organization and you say, hey, we're going to be going through a bad time, this next year is going to be tough. You know, I'm not going to cheerlead. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It's going to be tough. And there's going to be times when we're all going to feel some anxiety and some fear. So let's be real about it. But let's actually look at how we can work together and be stronger as a result of that. 
You know, the truth is what many of us know is that the times when we actually learn the most and when we frankly even have the best memories of the experience of what we went through were some of our most difficult times in life. And so when you can sort of position it that way and say, hey, we're in this together, you know, I'm here for your, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got your back, you've got mine, and we're going to work on this together and we're a team, all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I, I don't feel like I'm just on my own here. I mean, I feel like I've got people who are here to help support me. And, you know, that strength in – it feels terrible being lonely. It feels worse feeling like you're in a, in a company where you're lonely and you're scared. And many people in a recession, that's exactly what they feel. So learn, learning how to create that sense of what Abe Maslow, the famous Abe Maslow I talked about earlier with his hierarchy of needs, he said that great leaders create great psychohygiene. Psychohygiene. Well, when you think about hygiene – if you go out for a run or if you're like, if you go, let's say, let's say you go into a, uh, a sauna and you're sweating. In fact, that's most companies these days. It's a sauna. <laughs> it's a sweat box. Everybody's in a sweat box. When you're in a sweat box with a bunch of other people, you want to shower afterwards. Otherwise, you're going to smell. And generally speaking, most of us in the sweat boxes that are the organizations we work for, we come home smelling pretty bad. And what a great leader does is figure out how do you have the catharsis where we as a group have a conversation about what's going on. It's almost that conversation where there's vulnerability around what's going on and how we're going we're gonna to get to the goal we want, but we're not going to do it just out of bravado, but we're going to do it by actually being honest with each other and collaborate. Um, by doing that, you know, it creates almost like a figurative shower, and you clean off and you get hygiene, and that's what psychohygiene is for a leader. And, and you're right about men. Men have we're socialized at a young age to actually man up and to not talk about, you know, what's going on for us. And therefore, generally speaking, we are not as emotionally fluent as women are. It's just true. I mean, no, you know, no, no surprises there. You know, that's on an average. I'm not talking about any particular individual here. But, you know, what that means later in life, you know, during this last four years, I've had six friends, classmates from college, business school classmates, fraternity brothers. I've had six friends commit suicide, um, many of them entrepreneurs, successful business leaders, who got their identity of who they were too attached to the company that they were, had created. And when their company went down, they went down, and all six were men. Not one of them was a woman. And the, rate, and, you know, the stats are very clear. I think it's either three to one or four to one that men <coughs> commit suicide um, and are successful at it. I hate that to use that word, but they actually commit suicide and actually die. Uh, it's three to three or four to one ratio of men to women. Um, so, you know, understanding that man, manning up can also put you in a place where you are completely confused by what's going on inside of you, and you want to escape. And getting to the place of escaping as a means of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge or using a gun or, or overdosing. You know what? There's so many alternative paths for you. Uh, and that's why part of the reason I wrote the book is because I really do feel like, uh, you know, after having six friends take their lives, I wanted to be in a place where I could sort of say, I, you know, let's stop the madness. Let's talk about our emotions. Yeah. Wow. You just, I got full body chills here and you described um, what you described. And I think of that, that is something that, especially as young adults and, and maybe guys or as a culture overall, that we just don't have that awareness that it's, it's okay to have emotions. It's okay to express them. And, and perhaps, I mean, I'm curious to, to hear, you know, your standpoint, but 
my understanding is that emotions aren't selective. So if you want to be able to feel, you know, extreme levels of, of bliss with sobriety intact, then you need to be able to kind of feel your emotions on a, on a full spectrum. Um, is, is that accurate? And what, um, like, what can we do to start to embrace our emotions more? Well, you start you start by, I mean, I, I'd start by reading emotional equations. <laughs> the book I wrote. I mean, that's one step. But you know, you can write, you can you can read a book. I, the, the simplest thing is to actually go online and just you know do, re, read about emotional intelligence. You can go to emotionalequations.com, my website, and learn more about it there without even buying the book. But buying the book's pr- a pretty pretty simple and not too expensive alternative way of actually learning more. Beyond that, you can actually start taking courses. There's online courses on emotional intelligence. You can even go to therapy, therapy or counseling or you know, as a means of helping to understand what's going on inside of you. Um, that's, a, that's a great path as well. Um, but most importantly, I think learning how to identify what's happening inside of you, even talk about it with friends. I mean, you know, your friends don't charge you time to actually have a conversation, and sometimes you can have a conversation with your friends about what's happening for you emotionally, and an hour later you realize, wow, I feel so much better. I mean, I just did, I guess I needed to express myself uh, because I was just holding it inside. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, at the end of the day, that's what I would, you know, recommend is that people just do a little bit of exploration. In my book, Emotional Equations, figure out the chapters that are most important to you. You don't have to read the whole book. You could sort of say, I am someone who has anxiety, so I want to read the anxiety chapter. Or I want more happiness or joy in my life, and so I want to read the happiness chapter or the joy chapter. Or, you know, I want to understand how to be more curious in life. Um, I want to read the curiosity chapter. So that's the nice thing. It's like an encyclopedia of emotions. So you can just figure out the emotion that's sort of speaking to you right now and, and dive deep into that one. Yeah, do you have a practice of stopping yourself on a daily basis and just asking yourself, what am I feeling right now? Is that something that you do? I did when I was going through that difficult time a few years ago. Absolutely. I was doing it, uh, you know, daily, hourly, sometimes, you know, and, and at least at the end of the week I would ab- absolutely sit down and uh, and I would, you know, do a, do a deep dive into, you know, what I'd learned. Um but you know the, the the truth is that I um, I think that having some and that's why the introvert in me appreciates having some time and space to sort of like just slow down and see what I'm feeling. You know, one yeah. of the things that's very true for many of us who are very um, doing dr- driven. You know, I'm a very driven guy. I'm very Type A. Uh, I, at times, very workaholic. You know, workaholism is just another form of addiction to distract ourselves from what's going on inside of ourselves. So quite often in life, you know, we get distracted because we are trying to distract ourselves from emotions we're feeling, and we don't really want to feel those emotions. And so we use alcohol, we use relationships, we use, um, you know, drugs, we use TV, we use all kinds of things to distract ourselves. And so, you know, I've learned that work can also be a form of distraction as well. In fact, there's even a workaholism chapter in the book in terms of how to understand if I have a tendency to be like way too workaholic or, do, you know, doing driven and focused on my performance and achievements, okay, what's that about? So what does it actually do for us to stop and say, okay, I'm feeling this or to embrace the emotion? Is that instead of going to the, you know, the alcohol or the TV or to the relationships, what's the, the benefit and the advantage of saying, all right, well, I'm feeling sad right now and I'm going to own that and just not try to cover it up with something else? Well, um, the advantage is uh, there's a guy named Carl Jung, 
J-U-N-G, J-U-N-G is the last name. Carl Jung once said, what we're unconscious about has power over us. So I, what I believe, you know, really deeply down to my toes is when you're acting very unconsciously in your life, you don't even know what's sort of like driving you and, you know, you're, you're doing this or you're doing that and you're doing it maybe to actually distract from something else, at some point it takes a toll on you. Um, it's like wearing the, wa- the mask without even knowing you're wearing the mask. And so I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, if you, if you get to a place where you're constantly, in, you know, in, in, in this distracted mode, you sort of lose track of who you are. Uh, and uh, for me, I've, I've found that my happiest times in life are when I'm actually sort of in touch with who I am. And so, yeah, I, that would be... Those are just a few thoughts, but you know, I mean, yeah, it, it sounds yeah, it sounds pretty sufficient. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's let's jump into a few of the emotions that kind of jump out at me as things that young adults are facing, and perhaps people in general. But anxiety is a big one. So, can you talk a little yeah, bit like about that. what anxiety consists of? Yeah, I appreciate the fact you use that one because I, I, that's actually, of all the ones I have in the book, I actually think that's the one that's been the most powerful p- for people. So anxiety, it's interesting. When I did my research on anxiety, I went out and spent some time with people who are the specialists in anxiety in the world and found that there's really two primary ingredients for anxiety. Um, uh, and it's what you don't know and what you can't control. So anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. Uh, and so once you know that, uh, you can actually do what I call the anxiety balance sheet. So uh, if anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness, think of something that's making you very uh, anxious, and it may be something that's made you anxious for a while. Uh, the example I sometimes use is uh, I'm anxious that uh, I'm going to lose my job, that there's an economic layoff coming in, in my company that I'm working in or um, or I'm not going to be able to get a job, or whatever it is. Just come down, come up with what it is, and then create four columns. In the first column, it's uh, write down, what do I know about this thing? So if I was working in a job and I thought there was going to be some economic layoffs, you know, what do I know about this? How is the company doing? How am I doing in my job? What do I know about that? second column is, what don't I know? And that, you, know, you might not know that whether there's, you know, how the company is doing financially, or you might not know what the senior executives or your boss is thinking about you. And the third column is, what is it that I can influence? And, of course, you can influence how, how well you're doing in the job. What, you know, the better you do in your job, the less likely they're going to actually fire you. Um, the more you can actually help the company succeed, the, the less likely that there's a risk of a layoff. And then column four is, what is it that I cannot influence? So column one is an asset. What do I know? Column two is a liability. What is it that I don't know? Column three is an asset. What is it that I can influence? And column four is a liability. What can't I influence? What I found with 1,200 leaders that we've done this with uh, in places like Google and uh, Schwab and Wells Fargo uh, and CBS is that 75% of us, when we do this exercise and spend 20 minutes doing it, 75% of us have more items under columns one and three, the assets, than we do under columns two and four. In fact, just the act of putting it on paper makes us feel better. Because when, it's, when anxiety is just sort of free-floating around, you know, it makes us feel, uh, makes us feel I don't know, that much more, I don't know, when it's sort of free-floating, it just feels like, ooh, at any moment, I don't, I, you have no sense of grounding. So putting it on paper makes you feel better. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two is, look at what's in column two. 
Column two is, what is it that I don't know? So 75% you know, of us have more items in column one and three, but some of us have put things in column two. What is it that I don't know? Well, if it's an economic layoff, it could be, well, you know, my boss knows, I think, but I don't know whether we're going to have an economic layoff. Or it could be, you know, you think your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend's cheating on you. <laughs> Who knows that? Well, maybe they know it. <laughs> if your girlfriend's cheating on you, she probably knows. So why, the, the question I would say is, well, why don't you ask your boss if there's an economic layoff coming? Or why don't you ask your girlfriend if she's cheating on you? It's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. That'll, that'll, that'll be an uncomfortable conversation. Well, of course it will be. But there's a famous research study that showed the following. They had a group of people in a room, and they gave people the choice. You can either get an electric shock now that'll be twice as painful, or you can get an electric shock sometime in the next 24 hours. We'll put an electric sensor on you. And sometime in the next 24 hours, you'll get an electric shock randomly when you least expect it, maybe. So you have a choice. Get it now, twice as painful. Or get it randomly in the next 24 hours at half as painful. Two-thirds of the people chose pain now. Hmm. You know, Jacob, what would you do? Would you, would you choose the pain now, or would you say, uh, you know, I'll take my chances and half the pain sometime in the next 24 hours? Yeah, well, it's the dilemma between physical pain and, and psychological pain. I think I, I would go with the physical pain. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, it's interesting. It, so you just put it in perfect uh, language. Most of us actually are more threatened by psychological pain than we are physical pain. So what does this mean for us in terms of understanding anxiety and understanding you know, the equation for anxiety? Well, if you're a leader or if you have information that you know is creating anxiety for other people, share it. Package it well, but share it. Get it out there soon because, frankly, in an organization or in a small department or in a family, if people are worried about something and they're talking about it behind your back, oh, they're coming up with all kinds of scenarios that are probably worse, much worse than the reality of the scenario. So, um, so that's the first step is make sure that you've, you, know, you, you go out and package it. And if, in fact, you have some some fear of something and anxiety and you think somebody else knows the answer, maybe it's better to go ask them. If your girlfriend's cheating on you, better to find it out now than later. <laughs> if, your jo if your job's in jeopardy and you may be laid off in, in a month, maybe find out now. That gives you some time to prepare. Now, I know we don't really like to hear the bad news, but frankly, for most of us, going through the process of anxiety is much worse. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think another yeah. big question for young adults is happiness and kind of how do we achieve happiness. I can remember in my own life, I had a couple of years ago, I had really high highs and really low lows. It was just like, what the hell? There has to be some kind of level that I can, you know, balance out of sustainable happiness. And I went nuts trying to find that, you know, I tried buying things and achieving certain levels of success in my job. Um, going out and you know having sex and whatever I could do and that these things would keep Tell us really more about high that. and then <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that one after the call. But that um you, you know I'm like well, how how do I do that you know how do I achieve this sustained level of happiness? So I'm wondering what the emotional equation for happiness is. Well, for this one, I actually uh, I, this is the second one I did right after I did the despair equals suffering minus meaning because I figured if I've got the despair thing down, I can better get the happiness thing down. So I went to a place called Bhutan, um, which is uh, in, between China and India in the Himalayas. Uh, and because I went there because for 40 years they've been uh, the first country in the world to actually introduce a gross national happiness index. And so they've actually created the conditions for how to create happiness for their citizens. 
can you just explain what that means, gross happiness yeah, index? Yeah, so, so what we all, there's um, uh, something called gross domestic product, GDP. It used to be called gross national product. GDP is the primary form of how most governments in the world define whether they're economically in good shape. How, what's your GDP? And so growth in GDP, like lately, the last few years has not been very good in places like the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, so uh, what uh, the king, the 17-year-old king of Bhutan in 1972, or 1971 or 1972, said, uh, why are we so focused on GDP? At that point, it was GNP, gross national product. Why don't we focus on gross national happiness? Because at the end of the day, that's really what our people want is happiness. So um, I went there because the United Nations has a whole team studying happiness there too. So I got to, met, I got to spend some time with the Prime Minister and the full gross national happiness uh, team. And I came back realizing that there, around the world on four different continents, they've done a study to find what's the fastest way for a person to go from being unhappy to feeling happy. And it's very interesting. It's to feel gratitude and to express it. So if you hmm. feel gratitude and you express it, it actually makes you go from hap unhappy to happy faster than any other thing you can do. So the equation for happiness uh, goes back uh, to something, something that a rabbi, a rabbi once said in 1954. He said, happiness is not about having what you want. It's about wanting what you have. So let me explain this. So the equation is happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. That's a little bit complicated, so let me explain Wanting what you have, which is in the numerator, so happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. So wanting what you have means to practice gratitude. So if you want to feel happy, figure out a way to imagine the things that are most important to you and then feel them and then express some gratitude to someone else for them. It makes not just you happy, it makes someone else happy as well. That's pretty simple, and it really is the fastest way to, to get to gratitude, to get to happiness. In the bottom of the equation, um, having what you want. Well, isn't having what you want the same as wanting what you have? No. Wanting what you have means you appreciate what you have. Having what you want means that there's something you want you currently don't have, and you have to go out and pursue or obtain it or get it. Now, this is like, oh, wait, you're saying that's, that, that's a negative? That doesn't create happiness? <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing about it. It actually create, it creates this dynamic in our, work, in our minds, which is what we call if-then thinking. If-then thinking means if I get this, then I will feel that. Like, well, of course, that's how, that's, we're Americans. That's how life works, right? Well, here's the problem with it. What, quite often, we think if we get this, then we'll feel happiness. If we get that promotion, I'll feel happiness. If I get that, that raise at work, I'll feel happiness. If I get that girlfriend, I'll feel happiness. If I have sex with her, I'll feel happiness. If I get that you know, new Mazda, I'll feel happiness. What's been proven over and over again is it's not that happiness, I mean, it's not that success creates happiness. It's actually that happiness creates success. <laughs> so if, it's, if then, it's okay, I need to get the happiness first. And frankly, when you get into a happy place, you tend to be easier to be around, you're better at what you do, etc. So the, the, the practicing of gratitude at the top is good. The pursuing of gratification means that if you're constantly going out and trying to chase a shiny object that you haven't gotten yet, you're, you will be pursuing things. And pursuing things can be fun, but if once you get it, sometimes what happens, you've seen this with relationships, once you get it, it doesn't look quite as good as you thought it was going to look, and so you go pursue something else. We do this, that's part of life. 
Now, it's not to say that you should be a couch potato just like doing a gratitude journal all day long and not do anything. <laughs> of course not. It's just that you can't practice gratitude and pursue gratification at the same time. So you just need to have a healthy balance. You just need to have a healthy balance. So that's what I've learned. And I'm a type A guy. So if I've learned that, you can learn it too. Yeah, and then if we're thinking about so, you know, having what you want, for me what I'm at this stage in my life where I'm questioning, well, why do I want what I want? Is it innate to my nature? Is it authentic for me? Or is it based on the culture that I live in and perhaps the consumerism that drives the economy and the advertisements and the media that have bombarded me with, you know, this is what will make me happy and kind of marketed my, my expectations for happiness in consuming things and, you know, money, fame, beauty, and, and these kind of things. And then the other question is, so what? So should we not want anything? Like, where's the balance? So how do we figure out what is worth wanting and, and pursuing those things? Well, this is, uh, you know, one of my final thoughts for you is it all is about, it has so much to do with the pond that you're swimming in. You know, pick the right pond. Uh, I, if I, My last sort of... Uh, piece of advice I could give to people is pick the right pond. If you're hanging out with people who have values that are sort of messed up and are getting you to actually appreciate and value things that aren't important to you and make you feel like you're not, ca- you're not keeping up with them and therefore you feel like you know, less than, go swim in a different pond. Go hang out with different people. You know, so much of our lives are affected by the socialization of who we spend our time with. And we spend, when we spend our time with people who we're constantly comparing ourselves with that make us feel small or inferior or, you know, like we haven't gotten what we need to get, um, you know, it, it's, it's, you're swimming in the, in the wrong pond. So find the pond of people. It doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to go find all the inferior people because I'll feel, you know, I'll feel just better than all of them. That's not the solution either. Because if you actually, if that's your mindset, all you're doing is you're just moving, you know, you're just like, letting your ego, you know, basically rule your life. Instead, find a pond of people that feel comfortable, a pond of people that you just like hanging out with, a pond of people you, that you admire and respect, a pond of people who are, you know, sort of have similar values to you. If you do that, you're more likely to be happy. You're more likely to be successful. You're more likely, frankly, to, you know, live a good life. And you've got a full life ahead of you, so I, I, I hope you'll take that advice. Appreciate it, and appreciate your time. I want to get one last less than a minute answer out of you, and that is, what, what, what's your personal definition of success? Um, my personal de- definition, definition of success goes back to the name of the company that I started 25 years ago called Joie de Vivre. Joie de Vivre is a French word for joy of life. And for me, my success is when I'm creating joy for myself, for the people around me, uh, in the business context, for my employees, for my customers, for my investors, so, um, you know, everyone may have, have a different kind of, you know, a definition of success. But, you know, I, for me, that's my definition of success. When I'm creating joy for other people and for myself, <laughs> there's nothing better than that. Chip, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you yeah. doing everything that you've done to uh, become who you are and be able to create the joy in our lives, the people who are listening. So really appreciate it, and thanks for the chat. Sure. Well, I hope people have a chance to read the Emotional Equations. And uh, you're welcome to check out my website, chipconley.com, or follow me on Twitter or Facebook if you want as well. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much, Chip. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Here are a few of my favorite big ideas from this interview. Big idea number one, 
authenticity. So authenticity equals self-awareness plus courage. It's about being self-aware enough to know of who you are and at the same time being courageous enough to express that. Being authentic takes courage. There are some people that when you're with them, you just feel really safe and like you can be real. Start with them. Trust your gut and pay attention to if people have integrity and wisdom. How do you behave and act when you're with those types of people? That may be your most best authentic self. Big idea number two is despair. Despair equals suffering minus meaning, right? It's suffering with no meaning. If we can increase the meaning in our life, then we'll have less despair. So when you're going through a pretty shitty, pretty difficult time, you've got to look for the lessons and find purpose in it. People appreciate realness. If you can be straightforward about the hard times you're facing, but also confident that you'll get through them, this will gain people's respect. See how you can work together and be stronger as a result of these hard times. The times when we learn the most are the challenging times, so how can you have the awareness when you're going through the challenges to respect that? Now, one of the things you can do if you're going through hard times is to check in with yourself regularly, even hourly, and ask, what am I feeling right now? As Carl Jung said, what we're unconscious of has power over us. That brings us to big idea number three, anxiety. This is such a huge idea, and I've used it over and over and over again with my coaching clients. Anxiety equals uncertainty multiplied by powerlessness. In other words, it's what you don't know multiplied by what you can't control. That's where anxiety comes from. So if you want to reduce anxiety, think about what's making you super anxious. Then take out a sheet of paper and create four columns. The first, what do I know about this? The second, what don't I know about this? The third, what is it that I can influence? And the fourth, what is it that I can't influence? Just the act of getting this down on paper will help you feel better and the anxiety will start to reduce. Then, to take it a step further, look at column two, the things that you don't know, and figure out who you could ask and what you could do to start to learn more about these things. Remember, most of us are more threatened by psychological pain than we are by physical pain. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com.
Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.